I thought as we were singing that song that our organist had been raptured. Because <laughs> suddenly Jesus had come and she was gone. But Lorna's still here somewhere. All right, I come bearing gifts, Judy. Something she asked me for. And a book that I have... Uh, Rebecca's been asking me to read this for quite a while, Ty Gibson, A God Named Desire. And I will never forget, I enjoyed the book, but I will never forget the illustration when he was in the supermarket. Let me share that with you real quickly. I must slide into a sermon one day. But this man called Ty Gibson, some of you know him, was in a supermarket and he liked to shop. Most men don't like to shop, right? Right, men? Well, it depends what we're shopping for. We don't mind shopping for cars and airplanes and stuff like that, but we don't want to be going out for groceries and things like that. Well, Ty Gibson likes to do the grocery uh, shopping. So his wife sends him out to buy some, what was it, Rebecca? Salsa. Some salsa. That's it, salsa. So he finds the salsa aisle, and there's a lady in front of him. And I don't know if she was what size was this lady, but he was kind of like this behind her, trying to look, and she thought it was her husband behind her, and she never turned her head. So she put her hand behind like this to grab this gentleman's hand, and she says, what shall it be today, darling? Mild, oh no, mild or hot, or words, words to that effect. And, and uh, or medium or hot, and he says, well, I actually like mild. And she freaked out because she heard the voice of a stranger. I will never forget that illustration. In fact, I should have photocopied it. Um, make sure I photocopy it before you t take, take the book home. It's good to have some humor, isn't it? God invented humor. So natural humor is a good thing, especially if we can use it to glorify God and help our fellow man. Today we are switching from the book of Acts. We have left the book of Acts behind for a while. I hope that you have learned something from the book of Acts. I know that every time I study a book in depth, it's always a huge learning curve for me. And of course, the reminder that we are so dependent on the Holy Spirit um, for having any success at all in the spiritual life is a given. And we should get that, at least that, from the book of Acts. Another thing that we should have got from the book of Acts is that the ministry of Jesus continues. You see, we think of Jesus, well, he's ministering in heaven. Yes, he is. But he's also ministering through his believers on planet Earth. So the ministry of Jesus should be your ministry and it should be my ministry. That's something else that I got reminded from the book of Acts. And we will also be reminded about that as we go to the Gospel of John today. So, we'll, so take a Bible, the Bible in the pew, the Gospel of John. I'll give you the page reference for that. Many people don't know how to find the books of the Bible. You can find them by looking at the table of contents right at the beginning of a Bible, or I can give you a page number if you're using the Bible in the pews. And we are going to page, starting at verse 19, which is page 1686, John chapter 20, sorry, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Let's bow our heads as we open God's Word. Almighty Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for being our Father God. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ being our God. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit being our God. And we have all the members of the Godhead on our side to help us to get through to glory and spend eternity with you. But Lord, we don't want to go on our own. We want to take others with us. And so you've given us a commission. And this morning, we're going to look at that commission, not from the book of Matthew, but from the book of John. Impress upon our hearts. This morning, we heard in the children's story how 
our children can have the ministry of Jesus also. What a wonderful thing to train up a child in the ministry of Jesus. So Lord, help us all to realize that as we embrace Jesus Christ and as we are in him, that we are gifted for ministry. Sometimes, Lord, we, we don't have a clue what our gifts are. Sometimes we don't even understand what the mission is. So give us a little bit of clarity this morning. And more than that, um, the, the application, Lord, of the message to seek and to save the lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we turn in our Bibles to John chapter 20, picking it up at verse 19, if we had the time, it would be good to go back and remind ourselves of what led up to verse 19. And what we will find there, if I give you a quick summary, is that the followers of Jesus Christ pretty much abandoned him. So if there's anybody in this audience this morning that has turned their back on Jesus and has shamed him with their sin, and I think we can all raise our hands to that, right? Then you're in good company with the leaders of the church. Because this morning we will look at the leaders of the church or whoever was there. We don't always know exactly who was there. Some of them are mentioned by name, such as Thomas. Some of them are not. But we know that at least the core leadership were there, and, and probably others too. And what were they thinking? They had lost their Lord. Or so they thought. They knew for sure that he had been killed, been tortured in a horrible way, was looked on as a criminal of criminals, this leader who was to free them from the Romans and to set up his earthly rule, and it just obviously wasn't going to happen. Plus, they felt the guilt of denying him or abandoning him, turning their back on him in some way, shape, or form, and now they are a confused, fearful, guilt-ridden group of people. The amazing thing is that God is going to build his church on such people. Wow. So that's a little bit of the background. It says, on the evening of the first day of the week, which is the first day of the week? Sunday. Makes you wonder what kind of Sabbath they spent. Because Sabbath was their day of worship. There was no Sunday worship. As far as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was no Sunday worship in the first century. We don't have the evidence for that. Does that mean that people didn't worship on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday? Went, no, we're not saying that. We're saying that the day of worship, certainly for the Jewish community, was what we would call the seventh-day Sabbath. That's why I asked the question, what kind of Sabbath would it have been? A confusing, would it have been a peaceful Sabbath with all this inner turmoil? Whatever it was they were, these men and women were going through, it says on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, why were those doors locked? Now, I have a thing about closing doors. And I have a thing about opening doors. So I told some of our greeters this morning, they probably think, get, get, get this guy off my back. When the doors open, that says welcome, right? And when the doors close, it may say something else. So open the door. It's not that hot at 9.30 in the morning, though it does get hot around here, don't you think? A little bit hot at times. Or if you have to close the door, then go to that door and open it with a big smile on your face and give somebody a welcome. Has everybody been welcomed here this morning? You know, there are some folks that will, will 
will come into the church service when we've started worship, and they may not get the welcome that I would like them to get. And I want everyone to know, our church members, our guests here this morning, that you are all welcome. There is no one who comes in this building that should not be welcomed. And it's whose business is it to welcome them? All of our business. This should, this, this should be like your spiritual family. So if, if folks come to my home, if my children, we used to have a house full of children, and uh, they would bring their friends over, then I want to know who's in my home, right? Want to know who they are, want to get to be friendly with them and get to know them a little bit, and so on and so forth. Should, should be even more so in our spiritual home here. And that's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to come and welcome these fearful, timid, discouraged, doubting disciples. It says the door is locked for fear of the Jews. Jews were not going to be very favorable to the followers of Jesus if they just killed Jesus. And Jesus came, so he's not dead. Amen? Hallelujah. And he stood among them and said what? Peace. So you're reading an English translation. There's probably not one of you out there, including myself, who has a Hebrew translation or a Greek translation. We're all reading English. And most of the translations will say, peace. So Jesus is come, comes with peace. He is peace. He doesn't just have a message of peace. He is peace to those that love him. And the word that would have been possibly used is the word shalom. It's a beautiful word. We even have a song in the hymnal. Um, I have, think I have it in my notes somewhere. Where is that now? 674. 674. So take your hymnals. We're not going to sing, but we are going to look at something. 674. We're going to look at the meaning of that word shalom. And remember that if you're translating the Bible, you go to a whole bunch of manuscripts. How many manuscripts are there on the Bible? Is it 20? Is it 300? Or is it thousands? Thousands of manuscripts. So the Bible actually has a lot of, uh, a lot of evidence for its authenticity. And as we go to 674 we see uh, right at the bottom of the page, it says the word shalom, you have to have good eyesight to read this, the word shalom has a triple meaning. Hello, farewell, and peace with special overtones of what? Loving concern and sincere caring for each other. So I want to ask you a question. It's an easy one to answer. Is Jesus coming with rebuke and going to scold them because they've denied him and abandoned him? Or does he have a different approach? Now, some of you here have heard us say on other occasions, or you've read it, that if we were more loving and kind, more tender-hearted, there would be a hundred people joining the church when now there is one. Ever heard that before? Okay, so learn from Jesus. Earlier we talked about a different process of establishing ministries here in the Anderson Church. Another way to explain that is we want to learn from Jesus. We want to have a Jesus ministry. No matter what we're doing, we're trying to imagine how would Jesus tell the children's story? How would Jesus preach the sermon? How would Jesus go out into our community with the homeless? With We have a ministry to certain apartments, um, like a friendship ministry to certain apartments in Anderson. How would Jesus do that? If you're a leader here at the Anderson Church, do you lead as Jesus would lead? That's, to me, the goal. 
with all the information we have in the New Testament, we should be able to come with a fairly good picture of what Jesus was like as a, a follower of his father, what Jesus was like as, as a leader, preacher, or whatever else we're talking about. So notice he comes with peace. And it's kind of obvious why he would need to emphasize this peace, because they had their doubts, wants to bring them peace of mind. Their consciences were probably working overtime. Have you ever tried to process your conscience? It's kind of hard to do. Conscience is an interesting thing. I'd like to preach a few sermons on the conscience. Um, Sometimes we say that the conscience can be seared. Have you ever heard of that? The conscience can be seared. That when that that inner voice says, says this is the way, and, and maybe you shouldn't do that, or you should do this. We have a way of kind of quietening that voice, clamping down on it. That might be a very dangerous thing to do. God has given us an internal mechanism that, that He wants to use to turn us to Himself. And of course, if we, if we understand the gospel correctly, which is very, very important to do that, then our conscience should be guided by the good news of Jesus Christ and by the Word of God. So it's not like we're just on our own trying to figure it all out. But sometimes it can be a challenge to, well, if I was in the disciples' position, well, you know, was it really so bad what I did? I mean, what other choices did I have? And you kind of wriggle you're not quite sure what's right and what's wrong. And hey, when Jesus said peace, shalom, with everything that that word means, wow, that must have had an impact on those disciples. I know it did with me when I was first saved. And I didn't hear any word peace, and I didn't hear, know anything about shalom, but I knew that God was there. And I knew that I had a choice to follow Jesus or not to follow Jesus Christ. And yes, I had the doubts. Yes, I had the confusion. And through all of that, cutting through all of that was the presence of God. Not a verse in Scripture, not a sermon as powerful as they can be, but the presence of God. And I would wish that for all of you, that you have all had experiences in your life, not just when you were first converted and first saved. Some of you don't even, even know necessarily when that was in your life, and that's okay. But to know what it's like to be in the presence of God is, is very, it's like you're on sacred ground. It's very, very special. You never, ever forget that. And that's how it was here. Jesus, God, is in their midst speaking peace. Not only do we need this peace individually, we need it corporately. We cannot be working against one another. We have to have the best interests of one another, realizing that God reads our hearts and everything we do must be for His glory. So at times as a pastor, you're going to have to trust me. Now, I would wish that you trust me 24-7, right? I would wish that, but I've also been a pastor for quite a while and know what the reality is. Having been at this church for five years, the level of trust should increase the longer I'm here and the less I mess up. So I haven't messed up that much, I don't think, since I've been here. So the level of trust should be fairly high. So when I'm trying to uh, explain to you and move the church in the direction, which is a huge paradigm shift for this church, there has to be a level of trust there, right? And of course, you can ask your questions and you can get your explanations, but I find it kind of exciting to try different things and to move in new directions and see what gives. See if God puts His blessing on it or not. So you'll be hearing much more about that in the weeks ahead, and I will try and articulate the best way I know how to talk about the, the mission of Jesus, 
and hopefully the mission of the Anderson Seventh-day Adventist Church, and what your mission is and what my role as a pastor is too. If you had to choose one word, one word, don't you love those games where people ask you to give it me in one word? Hey, 66 books, give it me in one word, never mind one sentence. Oh, my, what? What would it be for pastor? What would it be for pastor? And it starts with an E, and it has a Q in it. An EQ, equip, I heard it there, equip. And there is actually a text in the New Testament when it talks of pastors and leaders in the church to equip the saints, which is God's people, for ministry. So I could just take that text and give you my own job description just from that one word or that one text. We could ask the same thing about Jesus. What, was, what, what is one word that would sum up Jesus' ministry? Well, I think it would be legit to say equip. We could use other very powerful words which would give us a different perspective on Jesus' life and ministry, but hey, if he did not get these, these disciples squared away, would we be sitting here today? As much as they messed up, as, as much as they made mistakes this, this morning, Les was reminding us of, of some leaders you've had here at the church which were, were perceived as making mistakes. And when I heard these two illustrations, I said, well, what did the church learn from that? We all make mistakes, so what's new about that? But can we learn anything from those supposedly what some would see as mistakes? That's the important thing. And I believe that these disciples learned some valuable lessons. Number one, when you mess up, you don't come down like a ton of bricks on people. You have the Jesus approach, which in this context is peace, shalom. We also have something else. Jesus says, peace be with you. And after he showed them his hands and his side, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So this is a passage that is often used around Easter. Why? Because around Easter, we want to emphasize Jesus rose from the dead. Now, there isn't a person on planet Earth who knows exactly when he rose from the dead or exactly when he died on the cross. But that's okay. We don't know when he was born, do we? But that's okay. We can still celebrate his birth. We can still celebrate, as, as hard as it might be at times, his death and we can certainly celebrate his resurrection. Because if there was no resurrection, then the death is at least misunderstood and may be meaningless. So often you'll hear this passage at that time of the year. But I'm going to get something else out of this this morning. As the Father, uh, and he showed him his hands and his side, the disciples were what? Verse 20, were sad overjoyed or glad when they saw the Lord, especially when they heard this from his lips and his presence is there. Some of them had heard that he'd risen from the dead, but now his presence is there. Again, Jesus said, peace, shalom, be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So I see peace, obviously, but I also see a pattern here, a way, a model of doing things. As the Father sent me, so of course you have to think about that and study that, how did the Father send Jesus Christ, and did Jesus Christ do what his Father asked him, and so that is a big theme in the book of John, big, big theme. In fact, you'll find him many times saying, no, my hour has not yet come. Can you remember reading that in the Gospel of John? And then eventually, now the hour has come, now the Son of Man will be glorified, which is talking about his death and his resurrection and possibly his ascension and glorification in heaven. So as the Father sent me, I am sending 
you. Whoa, what's going to go through the disciples' minds now? Any of you who have studied Seventh-day Adventist history, and it is interesting to study how church communities are formed, uh, why we emphasize certain things the way we do, and, and whether we're taking seriously this commission of Jesus to go into all the world, not just North America, but all the world preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. As we go into the Adventist history, we find how they really struggled to figure out what they were about, what they were supposed to be doing. Where should they be going? What should they be saying? And that same kind of confusion that I believe the disciples had, even after three years being with the Master, I mean, put yourself, wouldn't you get it after three years? I mean, this isn't Terry Mason teaching you. This is Jesus Christ teaching you. Or this is the Apostle Paul teaching you. Shouldn't we get it? And the reality is they didn't. They were clueless. Clueless. They didn't understand about a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. We know for sure that people like Thomas were still hoping for an earthly kingdom. And I believe probably all the disciples, most of the disciples, if not all of them, were hoping for that. Now they're getting their marching orders. This is the equivalent of Matthew 28. Take your Bibles. Matthew 28. Right at the end of Matthew. We call this the Great Commission. Well, this is John's equivalent to the Great Commission. I didn't take you into Matthew 28 because I thought, well, I've preached on that before and you've kind of heard it from that perspective, from Matthew's perspective. So the 11 disciples are there in Galilee on the mountain with Jesus. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but somewhat. It's not just enough to see Jesus. Here we have an example where some doubted even when they saw him. The challenge for the second, third, fourth, or 20th generation is can you believe without seeing? That's an issue in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written near the end of the first century. You had a second generation Christians coming in. So they were detached from the early events of the death of Jesus, the early leadership of the church. The only living leader that we know was the Apostle John. So this is near the end of the first century now. How would the church community process not having, not being so close to the primary events? And of course, apply that to our situation today. How do we process it today when we are so far apart? I just uh, was on the internet listening to, an, to Christopher Hitchens who I've mentioned to you a number of times, an atheist, and I thought, what did Hitchens say about Jesus Christ? So I heard this brilliant, articulate man. He is English, but don't hold that against him. Um, articulate what he thought, and I just wanted to cry. I just wanted to cry because he knew so much, and yet he knew so little. And it was obvious when I heard his answers that he'd never met Jesus. You know, some of us can be enamored on the, somebody mentioned this morning, well, what about leaders that have charisma? You know, some people, the way they're wired, the way they explain things, the way they do things, they have charisma. They have it. But you know, I wouldn't give tuppence for charisma as I would give for the trustworthiness of the Word of God, and more importantly, the, re 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 the reliability, the reality of being in the presence of God. It's kind of like the difference between knowing Him, knowing about Him, and really knowing Him. Matthew 28, 
All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That's an amazing statement. Who rules the universe? Who has all the authority? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We call that the Great Commission. The commission is spelt out in terms of discipleship. It's not spelled out in terms of going out and witnessing. It's not spelled out in terms of, of uh, having baptisms. Even though that's part of the process of discipleship. Discipleship is much broader. A disciple who sits down is somebody who sits down with the master. Now, I've just been looking at some gymnasts in the Olympics. Anybody, anybody like the, the female gymnasts I'm talking about now? Those are the only ones I saw. And, uh, and I thought they were pretty amazing. I mean, how anybody can bounce around and contort their bodies and, and win gold medals for things like that, it just blows my mind. I could just never imagine doing those things myself. And yet I see them on the screen. They're actually doing it. I'm sure it would be very exciting to be live there in London. Hey, they say if you're bored with London, you're bored with life. What a great city to visit and see the Olympics and see these, these young people. You have to be young to throw yourself around like that, don't you? These young people just do, doing their things. Truly amazing. Now, if I wanted to learn how to... Um, I think one of the amazing ones is these parallel bars, when they throw themselves from bar to bar and twist around. If I wanted to learn how to do that, and it's almost comical to even imagine it, I'm going to go to somebody who knows how to do it. I'm going to go to somebody who I would call the master of doing that. And that makes, that's common sense for most of us. So we go to Jesus, who is the master. We learn directly from Jesus Christ. I'm glad that it has, when it talks about the Apostle Paul, I'm glad that it says he learned directly from Jesus Christ. Jesus, Paul got the gospel directly from the horse's mouth, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he says, back to John, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. What was it for Christ? His mission was central. He never got distracted. His ministry or his mission was compassionate, and it was costly. Have you ever thought what it cost Jesus to be born of a virgin? The creator of the universe contracting to the measure of a woman's womb? Call that the incarnation. How long did Jesus take humanity for? When he ascended up to heaven, does he cease to be human? He's human and divine for eternity. Aren't you glad that these things are so easy to understand? We don't understand them. I doubt we ever will, but we do believe them. And we hear that we hear, here we hear the mission. We see it's central to the life of Jesus. If we've studied his life, we know him, how important that was. We see his compassion already towards these disciples who have blown it, but he doesn't come rebuking them. We figure out that it is costly when we look at his life, his birth, his life, certainly his death on the cross. There was one time when Jesus says, how long do I have to be with you? How long do I have to be subject to this world of sin? See, he comes from a different realm. It's one place in the universe that we know has a sin problem. The rest of the universe, we don't have any reason to think that they have a sin problem. In fact, we talk of that as heaven, and we use blissful language for it. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard the things that God has prepared. He will create a new heaven's and the new earth. Have any of you ever tried to imagine what it would be like, whether you're in heaven or you're in this recreated new earth, what it would be like to be in the universe that is better than Eden? Now, try and imagine what Eden would be like. 
I would imagine, perfect climate. I mean, it's got to be reasonably good if you're going to walk around naked, don't you think? Don't want it too cold. Don't want it too hot. Your diet is all around you. You're in the most perfect situation imaginable. Now, I know they messed up, Adam and Eve, but God gave them a really good start, don't you think? And then to think of this world being recreated as a global Eden, wow, it's pretty impressive. And then in the text, it says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And I want you to think about who is the you? Who is the you in the text? Are we just going to say, that's just the apostles? That's just the disciples who lived in the first century? Or does it include you and me? If it doesn't include you and me, then this text will not impact you. It will not impress you. It'll be something that you'll just put in your memory bank in the historical section as kind of interesting. But no, it includes anyone who follows Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. And that's why I'm linking it up with Matthew 28. It includes all of us. As the Father sent Jesus, so he is sending you and me. And he has designed you and he has equipped you and gifted you so that you can do the work that you are supposed to do. Do you remember Peter stuck his nose in once and said, well, what about this fellow who was John? And what did Jesus say? Butt out. Mind your own business. You just follow me. Know what you're supposed to be doing and follow me. Let's move on. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this has really confused a lot of people. And the next verse, even more so. Jesus breathed on them the Holy Spirit. Why did he do that? Pentecost did not happen. So when we read about Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that has not yet happened. But Jesus breathes on them, and I believe this is to emphasize the importance, as I said, of the Holy Spirit if these men are going to be leaders in the church, and I shouldn't just say men, there could have been some women there too, but if these people are going to be leaders in the church, then they need constantly, daily baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You and I are asked to be fruitful in a world of, what, of which we know nothing the spiritual realm. What do we know about the spiritual realm? When we're born into this world, basically what you see is what is earthly and what is fleshy. And what we need to learn, and this is why we need to be born again, is about this spiritual realm. So here, receive the Holy Spirit. You need power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. You cannot do it no matter how hard you try. Just read the book by George Knight on that. At least for Adventists, that should be pretty definitive. Here's a young man that said he's going to be the best Seventh-day Adventist around, and he became the nastiest guy on the block. He tried so hard to be so perfect. What did he need? He needed a good explanation of the gospel. And he needed to listen to that voice of the Holy Spirit. And he needed the power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to witness, which I believe is the main emphasis uh, in the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit falling on them, not so that they can live perfect lives, even as important as that is. That emphasis is given in other places in the New Testament, but so they could have power for witnessing. They have a message. They have this living Lord, the message about Him, the good news about Him that they need to get out into the world. We need the anointing of the Holy Spirit for that. doesn't matter how hard we plan. doesn't matter how much money we spend. We'll be spinning our wheels unless the Spirit of God anoints the ministry. 
So he breathed on them, and that reminds me of Genesis 2, 7. God creates man, and what does he do? He breathes into man. What? The breath of life. It reminds me of Ezekiel 37. These dead bones, will they ever live? Yes, they will when God's Spirit comes upon them. So we have this amazing visual of dead bones, sinew coming on them, skin coming on them, becoming alive through God's Spirit. I don't know which of those texts jumped into the disciples' minds, but Jesus is clearly showing the importance. Uh, in Desire of Ages 805, the Holy Spirit is now given to impress upon the disciples their need of God's Spirit in their ministry. Yes, they'd heard Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit. If you read the Gospel of John from beginning to end, you'll see the Holy Spirit mentioned quite a number of times, chapters 14, chapters 16, and, and so on. But they never really understood. They're, now they're starting to be anointed with the Spirit. They're starting to learn how to live in the Spirit. And of course, the whole book of Acts emphasizes that. Also, this tricky text right here. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, forgive me if any of you are Roman Catholic here this morning or you have a Roman Catholic background. But I believe that the Roman Catholic Church has done mischief to this text. It is not talking about a group of men who will be bishops or priests being able to absolve the sins of anyone. Sin is against God, right? Only God can forgive. So what does this text, what is it trying to say? And there are differences of opinion on what it says. Some see it in the context of church member to church member within a church context that, um, that we should, if someone is messes up and they're truly repentant, we should forgive them. And that would fit in very well with how often should I forgive? 70 times 7. I, I see it a slightly different way, though. I think it could be understood as, as these men go out with this message of Jesus Christ, when they go out with this message of Jesus Christ, and people say, but, but Peter, you don't know how bad I've been. You just don't know how, how I've messed up in life. That Peter, or maybe I shouldn't use the name Peter when I've just been talking about the Roman Catholics, but, but John can say, your sins are forgiven. When you repent, Jesus forgives us those sins. But if you don't repent, and we've seen this in the book of Acts over and over again, if you harden your heart and you don't repent of those sins, then you stay in your sin. There is not forgiveness. And we should be very clear on that. We're not to play the role of judge. I'm not saying that. That's clearly not encouraged in the New Testament or by the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I can't play judge and say that that man is lost for eternity, right? We can't do that. But we should say, absolutely we should say, and we should say it very clearly, that there is one way to get your sins forgiven, and that's through Jesus Christ. That's why he died on the cross, or one of the reasons why he died on the cross, a very important reason why he died on the cross, so that the sins of humanity could be forgiven that the world can be reconciled back to God. So we should, that should be, that's part of understanding the good news of Jesus Christ. But the flip side, the negative side, is that if people do not turn to Jesus, that's what repentance is, do not turn to Jesus, then they're still in their sin. Their sin is not forgiven. Is your sin forgiven this morning? Do you know for sure See, if you come into this church not sure about whether your sin, the worst sin that anyone could ever commit, your sin, is forgiven, then you'll come in here with a sad face. 
You'll be a sad Ventus instead of a glad Ventus. You won't be, you won't be looking forward for Jesus to come back. Jesus is going to destroy sinners when he comes back. Did you know that the second coming is a judgment message? Good news for those who trust in Jesus. Welcome, enter into the joy of the Lord. That's good news, don't you think? Wow, that's powerful news. And we all want to hear that. But negative for those who don't turn to Jesus, they're going to be running away. They're going to be running into the rocks and the mountains. They're going to be hiding away. They cannot stand to look on the face of Jesus. That is torture to them because that exposes their sin like nothing else can. So which shall it be? I hope that these disciples understood enough about the good news of Jesus Christ, I believe they did, that they would see how powerful this forgiveness message really is. And it is powerful. In fact, we've had a preacher called Billy Graham who pretty much his whole ministry, till the day he retired, I don't think he'll ever re truly retire, do you? I think he'll have to die before he really retires has preached a message of forgiveness. I don't care which sermon you hear from Billy Graham, if he's talking about the Ten Commandments, he will end up on forgiveness because that is a very important part. It's not the whole, but it's a very important part of the good news, and it certainly is, is the, the word that is emphasized here. I think the Catholics have got it wrong with their uh, judicial system where they absolve penitents with their confession and their absolution and I'm glad that the Protestant world understands this differently in, in terms, as I'm suggesting, in the proclamation of the gospel. So if you're going to be sent by God, you've got to know what your message is. And I would suggest your message is Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. Don't assume that people understand that. They are clueless. They do not understand the implications of that message. Hopefully you do. If you don't, keep coming here. Hopefully you'll learn something even better. Read Matthew, Mark, all the writings of the Apostle Paul, the whole New Testament, and hopefully you'll catch it. It's a sweet message. Forgiveness message is a sweet message, right? And by the way, you can't forgive others unless you've forgiven them yourself. So that can be a real issue in church circles. If we're going to move this church in the direction that I believe Jesus wants it to go, we have to forgive one another. There will be church members, there will be pastors that will cross your path. It is a given. At some point in your Christian life, it is, if you hang around, if you hang around the Christians, I'll guarantee someone's going to cross you. Say something, do something that just goes against the grain so much. How are you going to process that? Jesus says, if you don't forgive them, then your sins are not forgiven. This was a bit real lesson for the disciples, by the way. We're not just making something up here. This is a re reality in this text. They had to learn that lesson. Eventually, I believe they did. I believe there was really good camaraderie. I believe that their egos were, were left at the foot of Jesus eventually. And I believe that many of them had, in fact, probably all of them had, had a very good... Um, ministry, and God bless them fruitfully. We don't have time, but if you really want to get the power of this message, you carry it on with what it says about Thomas. If you know anyone that's skeptical, if you know anyone that's full of doubts, if you know anyone that thinks God's kingdom is about an earthly kingdom and not a heavenly kingdom, go to and see how Jesus interacted with Thomas. Yes, there's a, a mild rebuke there, but it's full of love. It's full of grace. And the bottom line, as I see it, is have we learned from Jesus the way that we should function as his followers, as his disciples? Because you can, you can say that you understand the message of the gospel you can say you understand the life of Jesus, and then you can choose somebody out when you have no right to do that. You can blow it in a few seconds. And when you do, if you do, hopefully you won't, then be quick to confess. 
be quick to make amends. There isn't enough time in anyone's life. You know, in fact, this, this, it would be interesting to do a series on forgiveness because there's such powerful evidence that unless we have a forgiving spirit, it eats away at us. Can I actually reduce our lifespan? It can damage our health. So did you know that the forgiveness message is a health message? Never thought about that before until right now. But you know, in some ways, mental health, it certainly is. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the way. Now as a church body, let's go deeper into how we as as a corporate family should function in our society here. What year is it? 2012 already? Wow, it just flies by. Soon Jesus will be here. Will we be ready and waiting, not just individually, but as a church? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems, Lord, no matter how much we learn about Jesus, there's always something we've forgotten, something we need to remember, something new. What a glorious life he lived on this earth. What a tremendous encouragement for us. Lord, we may never truly emulate the pattern of Jesus, but Lord, bring us as close as we can while we're still in this human body, in this body of sin. Forgive us for our own sins, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, lay it upon every heart, including the children, how we can do ministry for you so we can spread the presence of Christ throughout this dark, dark world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.